John chapter 12 is where we're going to start. We're going to jump over to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see where we get different passages. We are, for those of you who have been gone for a year, we are still in the life of Christ. Okay? Uh, remember, he had a three-year ministry, so we're dragging it out. I, the staff has been giving me a hard time the last couple of weeks. They said, you finally, you only reached the Passion Week now? And I said, yeah, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. Now it's, we're going to breeze through it. And they say, you do realize that half the Gospels deal with the, what happens in that week. And it's like, yeah, I do. We'll be here for two more years. Hey, here we go. Passion Week, that last week of Jesus Christ. Hey, does anybody feel like we should be in morning worship already? I just feel really wound up. Like I should be preaching, preaching. Yeah, today's different. (laughs) He said, today's different how? Um, Thanks. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Okay, let's set the scene. I got to start pacing and wear this energy off. Um, In John 12, the scene is they are headed into Jerusalem. We know what the triumphal entry is, but they're focused on Passover. Let's think about what Passover is all about. Passover is the time that you would have your annual celebration. It's going to be their 4th of July to some degree. They're going to be celebrating their ancient deliverance from Egypt that God performed through the 10 different plagues and then the cross of the Red Sea. And so it is a celebration. Now, this is key to keep in mind. If you were Jewish, you're thinking this. You're celebrating freedom or deliverance from Gentile bondage. Right now, at the time that the, the Palm Sunday is taking place, are they still under some different Gentile bondage? Yes, they are. And so it's a celebration. And when they do this, this celebration, they are also, as part of the festivities, they are going to sacrifice, choose the Passover lamb. Usually it's done earlier in the week that it's chosen. And then they sacrifice that lamb. And that lamb is to, to recall how God passed over them. That they were covered by the blood. And so, uh, so when the death angel came, that they were saved uh, physically, uh, not only from bondage, but also from death. And so it's this meal, part of the meal, they would have different items in that meal that would be reflective or rethinking back about the bondage because of the different herbs that were bitter and the bondage was bitter. And so they had step-by-step through the meal that they would symbolically recall what had happened in the past. They would also have as part of their meal some items that would look forward to a kingdom when the deliverer would come again and he would deliver them from the bondage of the Gentiles or as Jesus says until the fullness of the Gentiles is done and they would come and they would be under the future kingdom. So the Passover is a little bit like our communion. Not the same elements, but in a little bit this flavor. There's a parallel. We in communion, we look backwards and we look forwards, okay, because we say when we talk about communion, like we will tonight, that you eat this bread till I come. Okay, so there's a forward-looking. Well, that's the Passover, and so this is all a week-long festivity, festival, celebration. They're all thinking about these, and this is the thought that would frequently happen, and still happens today. Maybe this is the year that our deliverance would come. Well, back in those days, they would say, maybe this is the year deliverance from Rome, and we'll become a free nation. Now, what has been going on the last few weeks that encourages them They say, this is more than just a... Um, Um, a trite phrase, what has been going on in the last year? Who's been around? That kind of gives some of them a hope that maybe this is the year. Jesus, okay? Remember, just about a year ago, Jesus was ministering up in the northern region, and he made bread for thousands of people. What was their response after he fed the thousands? We want to make him king, 
Okay, they want to make him king. So these people are thinking king, kingdom. They are thinking deliverance. And so they're, that's on the tip of their mind. He has become very prop, popular. And uh, back in John 6, they wanted to make him a king. So that's the mood that's going on. As Passover is approaching, you read in John, I should open my Bible to be with you, I'm sorry. You're reading in John chapter 12 that they're starting to talk about, is Jesus coming? Is he going to be there? And the crowds are looking for him and asking one another and getting excited because they don't know what he's going to do. Is he, is he going to show himself? Is he going to arrive? Okay. And so we have down in John chapter 12, verse 11, because of that reason of, of him, that is Lazarus, many of the Jews had gone away. They believe on Jesus. Um, uh, then, then in uh, verse chapter 11, verse 56, what do you think you know, about Jesus? Will he come at the feast? And so all this is happening at the same time. That's the mood. That's the climate. And to understand historically, there have been a few other revolutionaries. There have been a few other uh, insurrectionists, political insurrectionists, that from time to time, they have in these last few decades, they have said, we're going to start a rebellion or revolt against Rome. Passover has at times had those zealots stand on platforms and say, gather to me and we're going we're gonna to have an army and we're going to fight against him. So this isn't an unusual time for this talk of deliverance. Their question is, what's Jesus going to do? And they remember he raised Lazarus. If he raised Lazarus from the dead, he can do anything. And so Lazarus's presence is also a sign of the greatness, the power, the messiahship of Jesus Christ. And so surely you've got to be thinking, if you're a Jew at that time, you've got to be thinking, you know, God's kingdom is at hand. God's kingdom is at hand. Now the crowds aren't the only ones thinking that. Remember the disciples are thinking, hey the kingdom is coming and maybe this is the time and can we sit on your right hand or your left hand? Um, You know, is this time Jesus has to give that parable of the pounds that says the, the ruler goes away for an extended period of time and then he comes back. And so Jesus has his disciples, even though he's telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. They're thinking kingdom, 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 kingdom. There's also one dude with his disciples who is thinking kingdom and thinking how it'll profit him. His name is... Judas. And when Judas realizes that Jesus is not all focused on money, and what, what, what instance really clinched this for, for Judas? The, yeah, the um, anointing of the feet, that one year's wages of perfume, when he says, we could have sold this. Jesus says, the poor you'll have with me always, she has anointed me for my yeah, he's catching part of it. He realizes this isn't going to be a profitable venture. I'm bailing. And so he bails at this point during this week. And so you have the, the Jewish leaders as well. Now, we talked about this. And again, you can't dissect chap- the end of chapter 11 from chapter 12. It's kind of, kind of unfortunate the breaks there. The last few verses of chapter 11 really belong with chapter 12 as far as the time frame. If you back up into John chapter 11, remember the discussion after Lazarus was raised. Verse 47, then gathered the chief priests, the Pharisees, the council. What do we do? This man does too many miracles. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him. The Romans shall come and take away both our place and the nation. By the way, who do you guess they're more concerned about? Our place or the nation? Yeah, I would think the our place is the emphasis. And one of them named Caiaphas says, you guys don't know nor consider it expedient. Somebody has to die for the nation. Therefore, from that day forth, verse 53, they took counsel for to put him to death. We jump a few days later. 
Okay, it says in chapter 12 about the anointing, verse 9 of chapter 12, much people of the Jews therefore knew he was there, that is near to Jerusalem in Bethany, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they wanted to see Lazarus whom he had raised. The chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. On the next day, much people were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so the Jewish leaders are really concerned because they're threatened. Jesus is popular. Lazarus is popular. The stage is set this weekend, okay? This Saturday, Sabbath, okay? It's all set for the showdown on Sunday morning. Sunday morning, Jesus is going to come in, and it's going to be a conflict between him and the establishment, but the crowds are going to be cheering. So Sunday, he makes his official presentation. You all have heard this, know about it, you've read about it. He spent Saturday in Bethany, Okay, he would have had his Passover meal Friday evening or their Sabbath day. And uh, because remember, Sabbath, their days begin at sundown. Okay, so at sundown tonight, we're into Monday if we were Jewish at that point. But our calendar working different. Um, so he spends, spends time there sun, Sunday morning. Okay, what we know is Palm Sunday. Early in the morning, he's headed towards Jerusalem. Before or as they are leaving from Bethany, they're headed towards Jerusalem. They have to come over the apex of the hill, come down through the valley, and then come up to Mount Zion. And as they travel, there's a small little hamlet called Bethphage. The place of the figs. Bethphage is some little hamlet, you know, that maybe has two or three or four or five, you know, little plot spots and maybe some, some business with it. Um, and so they're coming through and he says to the disciples, go ahead of us and you get the donkey that I'm going to ride on. And he, so he sends the disciples and he makes it very clear in the text that what he's going to do is ride on this unbroken donkey. Now, if we look in John chapter 12, we don't hear comments about the donkey. So let's flip over to Matthew. Let's pick one of these. Matthew 21. Let's pick Matthew 21 for, hold your finger in John 12. Matthew 21, let's get a little bit more of some of the facts about this donkey. Because the donkey plays into the story, the uh, getting the animals. Jesus has the disciples record this. Three of them record it so they think it's a vital information. Let's see what vital talks and information we can get out of it. Um, it says in chapter 21, when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem or come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two of the disciples saying, Okay, go into the village over against you. Straightway you shall find an ass tied and the colt with her. Loose them, bring them to me. Now, he also adds this information. If anybody says to you, you know, what are you doing? You just respond. The Lord has need of them and straightway he will send them. Okay, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which is spoken. And so we have, in verse 6, the disciples went, did as Jesus commanded. They brought the ass, the colt, put them on their clothes, uh, put on them their clothes, and he sat on. Now, Luke gives you the exchange of conversation that actually takes place. When the men get there, okay, where Jesus told them to go, they get there, they do as they're told. The owner, owners say, what are you doing? They say, the Lord has need of them. And the passage says, immediately they let the donkey go. Okay? So, Jesus' popularity is affecting the donkey owners. They're, they have impact. Now, whether they're believers already, maybe they saw Lazarus raised in Bethany, we don't know. This is all we know about the donkey people, is that they let the donkey go. And, as I read in, in Matthew chapter 21, he concluded the conversation, and he gave assurance in verse 3, he gave assurance to the owners that when he's done with them, straightway he will send them back. 
And so they, they, Jesus has, has given them the information. The disciples tell them. And immediately they go and uh, they talk. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on this donkey. Now why was he so specific in riding on the younger donkey? As opposed to the, the baby donkey as opposed to the mother. The older, more mature one. There's several reasons here that he does this. Okay, it is, it's, What's that? It's an Old Testament prophecy. Matthew even says that there's a fulfillment here. Okay, there's a, Matthew quotes and says, this was done as part of fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy comes out of Zechariah 9, verse 9, and says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, O shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king comes to you. He is just having salvation. The, obviously, this means Messiah. Just having salvation. That's a messianic reference. Lowly and riding upon an ass. And specifically the foal or the colt of an ass. And so he's, he's fulfilling prophecy. Matthew wants the Jewish readers to understand he fulfilled specific prophecies. One of the hundreds that he did. And so they come and understand that what we have is just a couple cases that give evidence in the Old Testament. When kings were anointed or celebrated or announced... That David started this tradition. That David had Solomon paraded through the streets of Jerusalem on the foal of an ass. So as to present this king, this new king. It was picked up by Yehu. Who when he comes in, he does the same thing. Now we don't know if that was how many other kings. These are the two that specifically indicate it was done by King David for his son. When he wanted Solomon to be registered as king. And then it was picked up by one of his great grandsons later on between there I don't know okay some historical writings say this happened more frequently we don't know from scripture it very likely was the case and so this full of an ass rather than the white charger the white you know big white horse this donkey would be of a different symbol it would fulfill old testament and the donkey would be more of a sign of peace um, you know, humility that, would, that they would understand. They, they would catch that better than we would because they dealt with these animals all the time. So there's um, there's uh, an instance here that we are given just a, a curtain. If you, uh, let me see if I can put it this way. You're a Jew, you're reading this text, or somebody's telling you this story. How, what happens in this story with the donkey, that whole account? What instances or events or items in that story indicate deity knowledge wisdom beyond human ability there's several things that happen that indicate he has pre-knowledge can you think about it he knew where the animals were what else he knew what the response of the owners would be okay He rode the animal. Now, there's a catch here, okay? Why is it interesting to say that he rode the one animal? The, it was an unbroken animal. It very specifically tells you this animal has not been ridden before. This animal's not used to it. And, so he, and, and not only is this animal, those of you who deal with the animals, could the animal be skittish for the first time? Could the animal be skittish because of the surroundings? Okay, because what's happening all around while he's riding the animal? The crowds, and it's rowdy, okay? That's a good way of putting it. It's a good rowdy, but it's rowdy. Could that have stirred up the animal? Absolutely, absolutely. So you have all these, these little details that Jesus gives. The, the total control of the animal, not just to ride the animal, but the fact that he'll send them back. 
Okay, they're coming back. So his control over the animals, never ridden, directs them that he'll send them. You know, Jesus will send the animals. You know, so bless you. So you have all these little, little snippets that just indicate not a, a, a typical person. He is an outstanding person, different than normal. So we come to the procession. The procession back in John 12 is interesting. Is who's there? This has been a subject uh, of conversation that some have said over the years that the parade that takes place, and this is important for you to catch. You're going to read, if you go online and read some commentaries or some articles, you will read this comes up frequently. There are comments that are made that are trying to um, make it less than... You know, lessen the occasion. Okay, the way that they lessen the occasion that many different uh, historians are going to say that when Jesus came in, it was the Galileans that were involved with the procession, the Galileans from his home country, the rest of the Jews. It was just it was a small celebration. There weren't that many people, and it was uh, okay. Does that ever happen in the, in politics in the last few days? That people give articles about who showed up and the cr- size of the crowds. Okay, they do that all the time. So some historians will do that with Jesus. And they'll say, when Jesus came, you know, the Hummers were there. Well, not, no offense to you two. But I mean, that would be great celebration, no doubt. But they kind of downplay that only his relatives and friends from Galilee. Because, by the way, was he with Galileans in his trip down? Yeah, he was. Most of this trap, he's been traveling with pilgrims. And so they point out that he's had occasion to persuade, to convince, and they're the only people, and they kind of just did the, you know, you know, the rolling log thing that you would do after big rocks, how they would put the rolling log and keep moving the big rock. They would just grab their garments and they would throw them here. They'd run ahead and do it. And it was the same people recycling the cheers and the garments. That's not what John 12 says. John 12 gives you some real specific information. John 12 says on the next day, verse 10, uh, 12, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Okay? Now, look at the first part of the verse. Okay? These people were already there. These are people who are already there for the feast. They took the bread. Now, could some of them be the pilgrims that had arrived on Friday afternoon with Jesus? That is a possibility, but go on a little bit further. They took the branches of the palm trees, went out, and they say, Hosanna, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus, when he found the young ass, he sat there on as it was written, and it gives you the quote, these things understood not the disciples, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. We go down a little bit further. Verse 17. The people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, they were there. They bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for they had heard that he had done this. The Pharisees, therefore, said amongst themselves, Perceive ye, we, you prevail nothing. Behold, what do they conclude? How many people? The whole world. Now, what we get from other passages is we find out that some of the locals from Lazarus, from Bethany, residents from Jerusalem come out. The Jewish leaders are there. And it says in Matthew 21 that the whole city is moved and came out. And so you have the idea that there's a lot more people than just the Galilean, his relatives. So that's a historical fact you want to keep in mind and not let them diminish the popularity of Jesus Christ. To the point that his enemies are, are moved to say the whole world. And again, we understand what they mean. Their world. Everybody in their, you know, in their circle. So there's a great number of Jews involved. Now keep this in mind because of statistics. Statistically speaking... 
When they would hold Passover at this time, you would have the city grow from what they figures, uh, you know, uh, maybe a couple hundred thousand people normally in the city. It would go to two and a half million people. Passover, you know how we've talked about some different areas we've, we've mentioned to you before. Like in Portugal where the Newtons used to have their ministry down by the ocean area. In the summer, that city would grow from 60,000 to well over a million and a half here, there in Portugal. Some of the people would make their entire year's income in those summer, you know, a couple summer months. I told you about people in their church that would rent out their house just for two months and that would provide income to send their kids to college. For the entire year. So that happens. Could people in Jerusalem. Could residents of Jerusalem do that same type of thing? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because remember they don't have the holiday in. You know Motel 6 not leaving the light on for you. It's a different world for travel. Two and a half million people. Would that put a strain on. Food. Travel. Sewage. Clothing. Okay. Can I add something else here? What are all these people coming down to do? They're coming down to worship. What's part of the worship do they have to, what do they have to do at worship time? They have to do Passover, which means they need animals. Okay? Are they bringing the animals with them? Okay? Ah, okay. Do they bring the animals or does somebody provide the animals? By the way, let me, let me throw this out. If you were in Jerusalem, do you think you would get the idea we could provide the animals? And we can make some money off of this? And by the way, not only would we make money off it, could it be beneficial to our fellow Jews? How so? Okay. Well, well let's think about it. If you were traveling all the way from Galilee, is that a, is that going to wear, can that wear out your animal if you're traveling fast to get down to the Passover? Okay. And when you come and offer an animal for sacrifice, what condition does the animal, is required of this animal that you offer? It's got to be perfect. It's got to be the best you've got. Could travel wear out your animal, injure your animal? Yeah. So would it be convenient for you if you were a pilgrim to buy your animals at Jerusalem? Sure it would. Sure it would. Okay. Um, And so you have all this playing in. Now, just to give you an idea, two and a half million people, to give you an idea what that means is historically speaking, we don't have all all their entire records, but it is estimates that this is over half of the pop, entire population, Jewish population of that entire area of the world. Now, again, could everybody have traveled or do some have to stay home? Okay, even though it's required, what might keep people at home at Passover, which is a reasonable keep them at home? Elderly? Okay. Okay, tending things that have to be taken care of, that somebody stays back. Could illness? Ladies, could a birth? Okay, and wasn't that taken care of in the law that stated, for instance, if, there, if you can't travel for the feast, here's the offering you can make later. That was even provided for in the law. So you know that not 100% of the people are going to show up, but over half would be there typically. Does that therefore represent the nation's choice, pro or for Jesus? Okay, on Tuesday, on Tuesday, do we need... 70% to make the decision who's our leader? No, what do they need? They just need that, that, they need the electoral college. But they need that 50%, so to speak. That's what we're talking about. Then it's the nation's choice. We'll use those terminology. So by saying with the statistical numbers, 
is the nation, when they say the nation rejected Jesus, is there statistically support for that idea? There is. There is. Okay. So you have a lot of people being there. The procession that we've already read, that what they say, it's interesting if you take the four different Gospels that record the procession, one of the few times that all four of them record. The people are lining the roads. They're cheering. We already know they're yelling Hosanna. We already said it literally means save us or save us now. It's a plea. It's not just a praise, it's a plea. Okay? Now, here are some of the other things they say. John 12 says, they make this comment. Blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. Interesting. They are some in the crowd recognizing him as king. Which is really interesting at this moment that they're doing that. Okay? Matthew or Mark records this. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. They see him as the descendant of David. They see him as heir to the throne. That's important. Okay? And they call out Hosanna to the highest. Okay? Hosanna to the son of David. Okay, again, we have that reference to a messianic line. They're accepting it. They're saying it. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be the king, according to Luke, that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Messianic references, a lot of them. If you read Psalm 118, which is about a celebration going to the temple, these are some quotes that come right out of Psalm 118. They are definitely tying him in as a mass group that he is messianic. He is deliverer. He is save us now. The people lay the palm branches. They lay their coats on the ground. All of it is indication of humility celebration. He's exalted above them. Clearly, they're treating Jesus like a king. Now, would that get the leadership who are in charge of all the political decisions? Could that twist their noses out of shape? Okay, could that concern the Romans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all, there's a lot of stuff going on at this moment, okay? So keep in mind that they aren't, you know, there's a lot of politics taking place. There's a lot of mood swings that are taking place. But not everybody likes the celebration. Some people are very upset about the celebration. Do you know, do you remember who? Who doesn't like it? Who tells it? It's got to stop, is their comment. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but who says stop this? Yeah, the Jewish leaders, they say to him, and Luke records this, so we have to head over to Luke. Okay, Luke 19. He records this where he says the leadership of Jerusalem, they come to him and uh, they are going to tell him that he's got to stop this. It says in verse 39, some of the Pharisees from among the multitude, great numbers, said to him, Master, rebuke your disciples. Stop them. Make them stop. Okay? And so what they do is they, by the way, they call him master or rabbi, teacher. The crowds are calling him king, son of David. They're not going to use that terminology. They don't want to use it. They just say, you're a rabbi, you're a teacher. He says to them, I tell you, if they don't cry out, the stones will cry out. Okay? The, um, the, many will jump and they'll say, okay, he is quoting from an Old Testament. There is no Old Testament passage that says this. Okay, uh, that the stones will cry out. There's a reference in Isaiah that is the closest to it. The reference in Isaiah basically says this. 
that you, the Messiah, will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and hills shall break forth unto you in singing. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. So it's the idea with the arrival of, of Messiah, typically a second coming is referenced here. But when he comes, nature is going to join in the refrain. Is this the passage Jesus is referring to? Very likely. It's the closest one we know of. But the point is, Jesus is saying inanimate nature. Nature that is different from the rest of us. Nature accepts the idea of his lordship. That he, is, that he is the exalted one. The Pharisees, I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I said this last year, two years ago in a message. They're dumber than rocks. Is what Jesus is saying. You're dumber than a rock. You know that you just don't get it. You just don't get what's going on. So the procession continues. Okay. Now here's a question that I have. I think this is an important question. In the past. In John 6. After Jesus did that miracle of feeding all the thousands. They wanted to make him king. Do you remember how his response was? Do you remember what he did when the crowd says. We're going to make him king. Make him king. Do you remember? He did something with his disciples. Do you remember what it was? He told them. In the passage says he insisted that they what? They leave. Get in the boat and go to the other side. He gets his disciples out of there. Why? Yeah, it's not time. It's not time to be celebrated as king. And could his disciples been? I mean... You know the disciples. Could they have been caught up with the emotion of the moment? Yeah. Okay. So he's got to protect them. Okay. And he sends them out and says, you know, you go. And by the way, what happens to them when they go out later that night? What happens to them? The storm comes and Jesus has to come to them and he's walking on the water. That's that episode. Okay. And, um, but then, then Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes up onto the mountain to pray. Okay, so he gets away from the crowd. He disconnects from a crowd that wants to make him king. Question. Here's a bigger crowd. More celebration. They're talking about making him king. Why now doesn't he stop him? He's even encouraged. Stop him. Stop him. Tell them to stop. And he says, nope. Nope. You're dumber than a rock. The rocks will cry out. Why does he accept this um, inauguration? Celebration. Why does he accept it now, but he wouldn't do it before? Okay, one, one obvious answer is, the best answer is timing, correct? Okay, uh, so the timing is there, okay? Now, this time, there's fulfillment of prophecy, okay? And it's pointed out in the passage. He's fulfilling prophecy, the Zechariah 9 we already read, about the king coming on the foal of the ass. It, there wasn't the prophecy fulfillment. Now he's going to fulfill prophecy. Another one, okay? This timing. It's my time. My time has not yet come. John, more than any other gospel, has that phrase. My hour is not here or my hour has come. It's like six or eight times. I forget the exact number. By, let, me, let me, you know, read now between the lines. He's going to force the Jewish leadership to make a clear decision. This is, he's going to, they've got to reveal their hand. They've got to do something because now the crowds are all around. They've got to do something. They, you know, the, the crowds are celebrating. If they're going to oppose him, they can't wait. But the Jewish leaders want to wait. Um, is it going to be in this text in John? One of the texts, and I'm going to go by, maybe I put it up here. Um, yeah, up to now they're secretly planning and plotting, but now they have to be more public. Uh, 
Yeah, there it is. Matthew 26. Matthew 26 says, right at this moment, that they wanted to wait until after Passover to arrest and get rid of him. Okay? Now, if they wait until after Passover, what's our problem? What's that? Okay, the crowd will have dispersed. There's something even more serious than that. This is all happening according to prophecy. Okay, does the Passover lamb have to die at Passover? Yeah, they can't wait until afterwards because he has to fulfill all the pictures of the feast, correct? Okay, the choosing, the, all that. So Jesus has to die in God's timetable to fulfill all these pictures in the Old Testament. He has to die this weekend, okay? And, and, then he, and in fact, then he has to rise again. And then does that play into the exact number of days to Pentecost? See, it's all in a time frame. And it's on God's time frame. So he's going to force the hand of the leaders that they can't wait because it's getting out of control if they wait. So in God's timing, by the way, the Passover lamb needs to be chosen and then he needs to be taken care of. So Jesus accepts it now. Okay, there's more reasons. Let's keep on going. This would force the Jewish people to choose. The Jewish people have to choose, okay, to remember he just told that parable just days before. The ruler is... Um, the the the, the uh, yeah the ruler is going to go away and he's going to get the authority because he himself can't claim rule he has to go get authority then he's going to come back and claim authority but some of the people don't want him do you remember that parable yes no oh please okay it's Luke nineteen it's a story in Luke nineteen and it's that whole remember that whole story that Herod had done that same thing he'd gone to Rome because the people didn't want him Jesus told that parable in conjunction with that that I'm going to go away while I'm gone I'm going to give some of you I'm going to give all of you one mina I'm going to come back I'm going to make you accountable one guy had made one mina into ten one had made it into five and one had done what with his mina he had hit it. Okay, that's the parable. And the parable concludes, he gets rid of his enemies, those who didn't want him to rule. So he know, there's people here that he knows they don't want him to rule. This is going to force their hand as well. They are going to have to decide. And the statement of decision is going to come to a head on Thursday going into that, or on Friday, when, when uh, Pilate says, whom will you have, this guy or this guy? Who's their options? Barabbas or Jesus and the crowds decide and cry out yeah okay so he's he's forcing this this situation that they have to really genuinely say okay what do we really want and uh but by, by the way can I can I conjecture this think could people be caught up in the moment of the celebration on Sunday okay okay from this time there's no doubt Okay, in this celebration, this is to me very, very critical and, and it explains what happens later in the week. I hadn't thought about this before. That this, this time, there is no doubt, Jesus is allowing himself, he is conducting himself, clearly fulfilling prophecy, clearly letting celebration take place that says, I am Messiah. I am the king. I am the son of, okay, son of God, son of which king? Son of David. That's all taking place at this moment. So to the leaders, he's just a rabbi. To the crowds and to Jesus, he's Messiah King. And he says, even nature recognizes it because the stones would cry out. Now the reason I say this is important. Do you remember what happens later on in, like in John 19? Jesus is standing before Pilate. And when Pilate says, are you a king? Do you remember Jesus' response? 
Some of the response is, he, he talks, he says, you have no authority but what God gives you. Some of it, he doesn't respond. He doesn't respond at all. Tell me, are you saying, he doesn't respond. And some writers of uh, commenters say, if Jesus has, had only stated something, by the way, has he stated something on Monday? Yeah, he's already, that, that's my point. He has made it so clear it is so evident. Do you think Pilate didn't know what happened on Monday? Do you think Pilate didn't know what the crowds were cheering? He, he, was, he knew. I think that's true. When you put it, all the pieces together, the puzzle. Pilate knew. Pilate's nervous. And so Jesus, there is no doubt in this week, Jesus has declared who he is. His silence before Pilate is not a denunciation, which some writers say, well, if Jesus had only made it clear, he made it clear on Monday. Let, let me rephrase this. You're telling your kids for weeks and weeks and weeks, you're telling them, da 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 da, da. Well, you, you take it, okay? You need to be home by such and such a time. You're telling them time and time again, you need to be home by such and such a time. And they come home one night, and it's two hours later. And they look at you and they say, but you never said when I left this morning, and you go, it's, it's just so evident. Am I the only one whose kids did this? Uh, you're all looking at me like, okay. You know, you, you say something so many times that, that they look at you and said, but you didn't remind me. And you go, it was so obvious. I said it. I said it. I've said it. That's, I think, what happens Monday. Jesus, or before, uh, later in the week when he's before Pilate. Why say anything? It's already as clear as the nose on your face, Pilate. I said it. Monday, it was, and, and who heard him on Monday? Who heard Jesus claiming to be Messiah on Monday? During this, I'm, I'm sorry, on Sunday. I'm Sunday. I keep saying Monday. I'm Sunday. Who heard Jesus on Sunday declare that he's Messiah? everyone, the enemies, the soldiers, everyone knew about it. So I, I think that's critical that what happens is this public acclaim, this public celebration, it was so loud that later in the week, Jesus is just silenced because it's just, you know, it's part of prophecy that before he would, as a lamb led to the slaughter, he's going to be quiet. From a human point of view, such a dumb question. <laughs> It's, it's so obvious. So, uh, with that in mind, Jesus is moving along. We have a few minutes here. Jesus is moving along. Let's go to Luke 19, because this is the only passage that deals with this. And it's a critical moment in the celebration. In Luke 19, okay? Luke 19. Okay, let, let me see if I can make a parallel. Um, we get political candidates, the presidential, vice presidential candidates have been in the region, Harrisburg, Hershey, Lancaster over the last few weeks. What's the general tenor of those crowds? Any idea? What would you think? Excitement, enthusiasm. Would people sit there and go, oh, this, you know, I don't want to see this guy. 
No, I think there's, you know, the cheering, the uproar for whatever candidates you want. Okay, there's, there's the rah, 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 rah. So in the middle of the rah, 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 the question is, what is Jesus doing? Well, we know he has conversation as he's riding along. He has conversation with the Jewish leaders, and he basically tells him, you're dumber than a rock. He doesn't say it that way. Okay, I'm just saying. He says the rocks would cry out. But then we have an, a, a clear caption as he comes and sees Jerusalem. We get a clear indication of what happens in verse 41. In Luke 19, verse 41, when he was come near... Okay, remember this celebration is outside the city, is where it's starting. As he's coming down from Bethany, past Bethphage, and into Jerusalem. So as he's approaching Jerusalem, he beholds the city and he weeps over it. The word that is used here for the weeping is a very interesting word. It means to wail. It means to grieve. It's, it's this... It's not just like, okay, tears and you're choked up because of the love scene on the movie or that, you know, the, the hero passes at the last minute in the movie. It's not that. This is a sobbing. So you, all the celebration and Jesus is sobbing. I'm sure some of the people thought he was so happy. He's wailing. The Bible tells us exactly why he's so broken. Now look at the text. The text tells us what he is so broken about. He is saying to himself... Or out loud and they're not all hearing. If you, Jerusalem, had known even you at least in this the, your day. The things which belong unto your peace. But now they're hid from your eyes. This is your day, Jerusalem. Your king is here. You could have had peace. But you don't understand it. It just doesn't make sense. For the day shall come upon you that your enemy shall cast a trench about you. And compass you around. And keep you in on every side. What's verse 43 describing? He, but exactly what? It's a battle. It's describing a battle. Okay. Uh, what would we call this? A siege? A siege that they're going to put forts around or ramparts around? They're going to keep everybody in? What's the idea of the siege? What were they trying to do? What's that? Wipe them out. How so? Keeping them in. Starve them out. Okay, and he's describing a siege that the peoples would know because they hear about this in other spots. And by the way, has Jerusalem ever been sieged to the point that they have been eating babies? Hmm. Okay, um, it's happened in the past. And they shall lay you even with the ground. Uh-oh, what are they going to do to the walls? Yeah, and your children within are going to what? What's the idea? They're going to kill your kids. And they shall not leave on you one stone upon another. What are they going to do to the entire city? Yeah, they're going to wipe it out. They're going to wipe it out. Just absolutely, it will be on, beyond description. And then he goes, he ends up, Because you knew not the time of your visitation, God's presence in your midst. You don't accept it. You don't acknowledge it. So he knows what's going to happen. He knows in the next few decades, this is, this is going to be their experience. Some of these people who are younger are going to live through this. They're going to see their kids killed. They're going to see the Romans come and attack the city in 70 AD where thousands are killed, where crucifixion takes place by the hundreds, where they are going to slam the kids. They're going to take the kids' heads and slam them against the sides of the wall to smash their skulls. 
Okay, we get a very graphic picture of what's going to happen to Jerusalem from, or what happened to Jerusalem uh, when the Romans came. And so he's telling them, he's saying, you know, here you are, you have your opportunity, you're not going to accept me because you reject me. And he knows the crowd's excited, but in reality, they don't mean it. They don't mean it. They don't want him on, they don't want him on his terms. They want him on their terms. And so he's broken hearted by it. Now Mark gives us the only, Mark's the only one that does this. Mark tells us what Jesus did when he entered the city. He comes into the city and he heads with the celebration they stop at the temple. That makes sense. You'd go to the temple. They go to the temple and Mark 11 says that what he does is he goes to the temple and he gives the idea from the, the language that's used that he stands there and he surveys the temple and he sees everything that's going on and he's watching. He's looking. It doesn't say anything that he does anything more than that. He just watches, he looks, and then he leaves. And he goes back to Bethany, it says, and he returns to Bethany for the night. Now, Bethany is just, remember, just a couple miles away. He goes back to Bethany. The celebration is over. The crowds are, are going back to their normal routine of the, of the Passover celebration. Jesus leaves who goes with him? We don't know. How many people you know, hang around with him for a while? We don't know. But he watches. He doesn't comment. And he leaves. He's going to return the next morning. And I'm sorry I kept on saying Monday. But I meant Sunday. He, this is Sunday, Sunday night. He goes back to Bethany. He sleeps there for the night. And he will come back on Monday morning. He will leave Monday night. He will come back again Tuesday morning. He will leave Tuesday night and go to Bethany. So he's going to park at Bethany for the nights. But he's going to minister in Jerusalem. And so he doesn't start his temple ministry until Monday. Monday morning he wakes up. He heads back towards Jerusalem. En route, he's hungry. En route, as he's going, he sees a tree over there. The tree has something on it. It doesn't have figs. It has leaves. It has leaves. Okay? And why is that important? In, in this tree produces the figs the fruit before the leaves. The, the fruit is there before the leaves. It's not mature, but it already has the buds to it. It has like the crab apples that haven't developed yet. It's there before the leaves. So when the leaves show up, what should be there? There should be at least some fruit. Some fruit that's maturing. When Jesus comes up to the tree and examines it, the tree with leaves, what does he not find? He doesn't find any fruit, not even what they call the pagans, P-A-G-G-I-N-S. Not even the immature fruit. There's nothing. And by the way, they could eat the immature fruit if they're very hungry. That wasn't uncommon. So what does he do to the tree? He curses it. Says, nobody shall ever eat from you. He goes into Jerusalem, and once he's in Jerusalem, he does the cleansing of the temple. And he spends the day there, confronting and taking care of the temple. He comes back Monday night. Tuesday morning, he, uh, they head back to Jerusalem. As they head back, Peter goes, oh, hey, uh, the tree is dead. You curse the tree, and within 24 hours, it's dead. And Jesus goes on and teaches a whole bunch of lessons about the tree and Israel because, by the way, the fig tree often represented Israel. And he's going to say about how it showed on the outside, but there was nothing of substance. All this is going to take place on Monday. Let's stop there. Let's pick up next time when we, when we deal with it. Okay, thanks.